This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Welcome to the Science Podcast for May 24th, 2019. I'm Sarah Crespi. On this week's show, we've got staff writer Adrian Cho. He's going to talk to me about potential new targets for the Large Hadron Collider. Could long-lived particles be eluding the detectors on the LHC? And I also talk with Tian Li about using modified wood to passively cool buildings. The idea is to make a cheap, scalable material that substantially reduces the energy footprint of buildings by sending heat into space. I've got staff writer Adrian Cho here to talk with us about a hunt for oddball particles at the Large Hadron Collider. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. I just wanted to say that we are both going to say Hadron, but other people say Hadron, so that's okay. Large Hadron Collider is also known as the LHC. Can you remind us what it does? The LHC is the world's biggest atom smasher. It's this accelerator that's underground on the French-Swiss border. And it's 27 kilometers long, and it basically accelerates protons in opposite directions and then smashes them together in the middle of these gigantic gigantic particle detectors. And the idea is to smash particles together with enough energy to produce new fleeting subatomic particles and to study them. And most people think of this in connection with the Higgs boson, right? So that was the kind of the big find for the LHC. It was one of the reasons it was built. That's completely correct. Its mission number one was to find the Higgs boson, which was this particle that was predicted by the theory known as the standard model. It was the last particle in the theory that hadn't been observed. And so finding it was a huge triumph for particle physicists. This was in 2012 that they announced it. Mm -hmm. and, and what have you done for me lately, LHC, is kind of the question here, right? That's exactly correct. Besides the Higgs boson, particle physicists working with these, these atom smashers haven't found anything not predicted by the standard model for decades. They have lots of big unanswered questions, but in terms of what they can actually see at an atom smasher, so far the standard model explains everything they've seen. So they're desperate, more or less, to find something new that will open up the field and maybe connect to these much bigger questions. Mm -hmm. When you described how the LHC works, that it smashes these two protons together in the middle, that's kind of the key here. Some people are talking about changing the viewport, looking at different time points or different parts of the area where these particles come together. So can you talk about how that change would work? How much different would this viewport be than the one that is currently being used? The assumption is that these particles decay very, very quickly and always in the center of these gigantic detectors. And what people have begun thinking about, and some people have thought about this for a long time, but it, it's sort of picking up momentum, mm -hmm. is the possibility that the new particle that's produced doesn't decay 
quite so quickly, right? So the, the Higgs boson decays in less than a trillionth of a nanosecond. And the idea here is that maybe these particles live a little or, or even a lot longer. And so instead of decaying right in the middle where everything is focused, maybe they move a few uh, millimeters, a few centimeters, maybe even meters, maybe even long enough to make it out of the detector. And so the question is, could you be making these long-lived particles already that you're simply not seeing because everything is built on pointing in a different location. Right. What about moving the viewport so that we're seeing a wider view with the sensors or recalibrating the actual machine? There are something like a half dozen proposals for small, actually some not so small, purpose-built detectors that would look exclusively for these long-lived particles, particularly ones that live so long that they'd actually make it all the way out of the existing detectors before they decayed and could be detected, you know, meters, meters away. So is that expensive? Is it, you know, how long would it take? How likely is it to happen? These are mostly in the sort of proposal stage, but there's one, an experiment called Phaser, which is already funded. It has $2 million of private foundation money, and it will be positioned along the beam line about 500 meters in front of the ATLAS detector. And the idea is that ATLAS may be producing lots and lots of light long-lived particles, in particular things known as dark photons, that would just be streaming out of the detector, but there's nothing there to see them, especially because they're going along the beam line where the, the big detectors are sort of mostly blind. And basically what Phaser would be looking for is evidence of light particles coming through a whole bunch of rock and then turning into electron-positron pairs. And if you saw that, you would know, oh my gosh, right? You know, something that we've never seen before is, is coming out of Atlas, and that would be pretty cool. Well, let's assume that somehow this, this gets done. What kinds of things would they see? You said long-lived. What, what would that be? There's an upper limit on how long long-lived can be. They, you know, you can't have new particles like this that last much more than a second. So it's sort of from picoseconds to about a second, things that move from a few millimeters to, say, meters and even beyond. And the reason you might think that you'd miss them is because the events that the LHC makes are incredibly messy, right? You know, there's sort of... Right. It's like little explosions. Right. And there's like, you know, 30 of them in each uh, proton bunch crossing, right? So they're really messy things. But since everything is focused at the middle, a lot of the software, even the hardware, is sort of designed to discount things that come in weird places. They're going to filter it out, you know, saying that's noise. We want only one signal. That's exactly right. They'll say it's not a good event because we make millions of collisions every uh, every second. We'll just toss that one out. Now, is it all really gone or is it can we go back and find those data and just put them through a different you know, analysis? The detectors use these sophisticated trigger systems yeah. to make sure that they don't get overwhelmed with all these uh, collisions. And so they actually throw out, out of every roughly 2,000 collisions, they throw out uh, 1,999. I do want to circle back to the how likely is this to happen and when will it happen? When might additional sensors or changing kind of some of these settings happen so that these long-lived particles get a fair shake? The LHC is currently idle for upgrades, and then it's going to come on and run from 2021 to 2023. A lot of physicists think that this is sort of the ideal window 
to look for these long-lived particles. And the reason is that after that, the LHC is going to undergo another upgrade, and it's going to get a big boost in beam intensity. That's aimed to allow it to do things like really precise measurements of the Higgs boson to see if the Higgs really behaves the way the standard model says it does, or maybe it's slightly different. But it's not so good for these long-lived particle searches because every time the LHC now collides bunches of protons, it has somewhere between 20 and 40 individual proton pairs colliding. After the upgrade, it's going to be up to like 200. And these, oh, me- wow. these, these events are going to get very messy. To even be able to make sense of them, they're going to have to tighten up the triggers that folks want to loosen up to look for these long-lived particles. And so physicists are sort of thinking that in terms of long-lived particle searches, most of them are going to get harder once they go to these much more intense beams. So they're really kind of thinking that right now, this upcoming run, that's going to be sort of the, the opportune moment to look for these things. The folks who are building these additional detectors, they could run later. Um, yeah. And in fact, they're mostly sort of in the development stages and they're hoping to sort of get test detectors in line for the next run. But since they won't be tied to these trigger issues with the usual detectors, they can run independently. Some of these efforts are pretty ambitious and are probably going to take some time. There's one called Methuselah. Essentially, this is a really cool idea. A gigantic empty building, 100 meters long, 200 meters wide, that's going to sit above the CMS detector and look for long-lived particles coming up through the ground, 70 70 meters of rock. And what they would do is that they would come up and some of them would decay in the empty air in this building and produce upward-going showers of particles that would be detected by tracking layers under the roof. One of the developers described it as sort of two Ikeas uh, (laughs) worth worth of empty space with a few tracking chambers in the top to look for these long-lived particles. The developers think they can build this for less than 100 million euros. They don't have approval yet. That's obviously one that they're not going to have ready in 2021. It's going to take some time. I'm kind of imagining that the LHC is just is going to end up being the seed in the center of bigger and bigger detectors surrounding it from every angle, trying to find stuff that, you know, escapes and does interesting things outside of its actual main space. You know, I think that that's a key point to this. The LHC hasn't produced new particles yet. And I think that some physicists really feel that they have a duty to make sure that they haven't overlooked anything, right? That the big failure would be that something is there and for whatever reason, you just weren't clever enough to find it. And I think that this is part of of what's going on here. And I completely agree with you. I mean, it it sort of has this feel like they'll just keep adding detectors on the outside till, you know. Why it's not? The, it's the only accelerator like this that exists. So, you know, if you can get it funded and if you can afford it, why not? All right. Okay, Adrian, thank you so much for talking with me. My pleasure, Sarah. Adrian Cho is a staff writer for science. You can find a link to his story at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for an interview with Tian Li about using modified wood to passively cool buildings. Buildings use a lot of energy. They're energy intensive to build, to light, to heat, and to keep cool. Tianli is here to talk about a new kind of structural element, a special wood that might lighten some of this energy burden inherent in buildings. Hi, Tian. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me here. Oh, sure. So let's talk about this special wood. 
What What's so special about it? Well, you are absolutely right, Sarah. Like the buildings, it consumes a lot of energy. A building consumes about 40% of all the energy and 70% of all the electricity generated by all kinds of infrastructure. So it's definitely the largest energy slice. And what we did here for this work is to process natural wood so that it can cool itself so when you use it as building materials, it helps you to get cooler temperature. This is rather important the same that, uh, well, we use air conditioning a lot, especially during summer. And air conditioning is, consumes a lot of energy. So by doing that, you are reducing substantially the energy required to power our buildings. How it would fit into cooling or changing the energy demands of a building? The short answer is that the wood we process, it efficiently backscattering the solar radiation, meaning that it does not heat up under the sun. And in the meantime, it efficiently emit thermal energy into universe via the atmospheric transparency window. Let me just rephrase that. So that means that all the sunlight that's hitting it is bouncing off anything in the visible spectrum, but in the infrared spectrum or the near infrared spectrum just escapes into space. So the heat is is bouncing directly through the atmosphere and out into space. That's actually absolutely right. So this material is white in visible range, but black in the IR range, meaning that it does not absorb energy from the sunlight, which is mainly in the visible range, but it's efficiently emitting thermal energy within the IR range. And if you look at the transmission spectrum of our atmosphere, you would immediately notice that there's a transparency window for wavelengths that falls within 8 to 13 microns. This part, it can efficiently radiate out to the universe. So that means that if you manage your energy into this particular wavelength. It no longer interacts with particles, gas, anything. It just it just escapes. And I want to point out, though, that so we said, oh, it's white to visible light and it's black in the infrared. What that means is that it's not just bouncing. It's also drawing energy out of the building and then sending it into space. So it's it's passively cooling just by being a structural element. Yes. When you have emitted energy greater than the absorbed energy from sunlight, you can reach a subambient temperature. What did you do to the material to make it have these special properties? Well, natural wood has this brownish color. That is because of this pigment called lignin. As you know, if it has this color, it is absorbing the sunlight. So in the first step, we would remove all this pigment so that it won't heat up just like natural wood would do. After remove the pigments, the wood would become white. All the light is very efficiently scattered backwards. It does not absorb. In the second step, because we want to use it for structural materials, we densified it basically to maximize the interaction area between all these nanofibers of cellulose. Mm -hmm. These are all of hydrogen bonds, and they bond very strongly together when you have this maximized interaction area. So the resulting structure is very strong. It's even eight times stronger than natural wood and 10 times tougher than the natural wood. First, you took out the pigment, then you densified it. How exactly did you make it more dense? 
is by hot pressing. You have this machine, you press it while you heat it up a little bit so that it can be further densified. So it's now, it's strong, it's dense, and it's cooling. Where does it go? Does it have to be on the outside of the building in order to use all these functions? Yeah. So because for this radiative cooling to work, it has to face to an object that is cooler. Our universe, it has a temperature of only 3 Kelvin. Earth has a temperature of 300 Kelvin. What did you do to test the efficiency of this material? Did you build something out of it? We took the samples to Arizona, where there's a clear sky in a very hot middle of desert. So we actually are testing the subambient temperature of the samples. And also there's a thermal box that testing its cooling power. So basically, there's a heater beneath it. So the heater is heating up the wood. And there's a closed loop connection to maintain the temperature of wood to be the same as the ambient temperature so that, you know, this way, the power of the heater is the cooling power of the wood. How much of a temperature difference did you see, say, between the inside of one of these boxes that has this wood on it and the outside air? During mid of the day, when the sun is the strongest, we are observing a three to five degrees Celsius temperature drop. During the night, when there's no sun, it is typically more than 12 degrees Celsius. For the cooling power-wise, it's about an averaging 50 watt per meter square, uh, averaging through uh, 24 hours. So is that a considerable energy savings? So if you think about it, it's 50 watt per meter square. For a solar cell, we know solar cells are very efficient. And for a 10% efficiency solar cell, it gives you about 100 watt per meter square. So if you think mm -hmm. of this way, the cooling power is in the same order of magnitude of a solar cell. Would this work in a place that had a lot more variable weather? Would you would people want to use something like this, say, if they were in the Pacific Northwest, where it kind of rains a lot of the year and it's cold in the winter? Would you want this in your house? The weather plays a very important role in how efficient the rate of cooling is. If it's raining, you will have a lot of cloud in the sky. And you know, the temperature of the cloud is not that low, not as low as the universe is. So if the, the cooling wood is facing to the cloud, which has a much higher temperature, the efficiency of this cooling will reduce. That's for sure. Some places would work. this would work better than others, it sounds like. Yeah, in dry and hot climate. Another kind of practical question here. You know, this is wood, which while it is something that you can grow and it doesn't necessarily have a lot of energy density when it comes to construction, it's not very durable. Like people don't make roofs out of wood. We have things that last a lot longer, like metal or shingles. Are people going to want to put wood on top of their houses? I think people should for multiple reasons. After densification, this wood have a very high specific strength, even higher than the best alloy. So it's definitely strong enough to support the buildings, even the high-rise buildings. Another reason is more towards the environmental effects. There's energy called embodied energy, meaning the energy takes to make the material. So giving the large quantity 
of constructional material. It is very important that we consider this energy, the energy it takes to make this material. So see, for steel, concrete, alloys, it takes a lot of energy. Those are the materials that typically of a high embodied energy. But wood is different. It's naturally there. You do some modification, some functionalization, it is still considered a low embodied energy material. And uh, the third one is that it's actually, it's kind of counterintuitive, but the more you use wood, the more you promote this high added value wood-based technology, you are promoting a healthy cycle of wood regrowth. You see, Mm -hmm. like when these small trees, they grow into larger trees, they are capturing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and convert it into the biomass, which is cellulose, which is the thing that we are using for radiative cooling. People have come up with paints or films that you can apply to, say, a different kind of roof or a window. So why would wood be preferred over those kinds of things? It is very important to consider that it has to be applied at a massive scale. It is good to bear in mind the cost and the scalability from day one. There was this development using dielectric materials, metamaterials, photonic structures to realize the irritative cooling. If you are depositing layer by layer, it's limited by the cost and the scalability. The nice thing that we think about wood is that it's, it's there. And see, the process that we did to wood to convert it from a natural wood board to a cooling wood is very simple. So first step, you remove lignin. You basically are putting a block of wood into a chemical bath. In the second step, you basically are pressing it. Those are the process that are compatible with industry-developed techniques. So because timber industry and the paper and wood industry, they have very, very good technology that are already there. Do you see this as like part of a suite of passive cooling technologies, paints, films, wood, all working together to lower the energy footprint of buildings and the process of building buildings? Yeah, that definitely. Like if you want a really deep freezing, like deep freezing to freeze it even below zero degrees Celsius, maybe to make ice cream or something, you know, you want something that have the precisely tuned spectrum, like in the visible range and the IR range. You do want to go with those carefully deposited dielectric materials. And if you want to use this in massive scale, would would be a good choice there. Okay. Tian Li, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much, Sarah, for having me here. It's a pleasure. Tian Li is a postdoctoral researcher in the Department of Material Science and Engineering at the University of Maryland, College Park. You can find a link to this paper at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, many other places, or you can listen to us on the Science website. That's sciencemag.org slash podcast. There you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. To place an ad on the podcast, contact midroll.com. The show was produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, 
Thanks for joining us.